Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another, or one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So how will the war in Ukraine end? Um, here's a, a picture from what's going on, a real picture from a friend of a friend whose mother is living in Kharkiv, Ukraine. Uh, and we see that there truly is damage to even civilian homes in this invasion. And it's a sad time. Uh, it's devastating for the world to be witnessing this in 2022. I have a Slovakian friend who grew up in the former USSR. Uh, and I asked him about Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And what's your take? And his answer is, Albert, as one who grew up, in the former USSR, and now is very gratefully, gladly living in Western free Canada, between the black and white, because certainly there is black and white, uh, there's also 50 shades of gray. And he said, if I really want to, I can see both sides of the story. Now I know that might be offensive, uh, depending on which side of uh, the story you're on. But my point is, and my takeaway from his explanation, is that life is so entirely broken. Life universally is messy and complex. And often, as I heard him explaining some history, even going back to the beginning of the 20th century, uh, my takeaway is that often the major source of the chaos, it boils down to one simple breach, an unwillingness to forgive. You could really boil it down to that. I don't think I'm oversimplifying that a major source of all the chaos of life throughout history, it boils down to, and it can and oftentimes boils down to, unforgiveness. I mean, just think about it ground level. You and me in our everyday lives is just globally speaking from a high level perspective, just little citizens. Why do we get into fights? It's probably because there's some issue of unforgiveness that's unresolved and that just naturally um, unwinds again and, and becomes a fight. But on the level of just the global scale, why do nations go to war? 
And even there, even though you're speaking of a nation, it can boil down to one leader and his final or her final decision. And oftentimes, right there, the breaking point is some matter of unforgiveness that drives continued aggression and offense. So how will the war in Ukraine end? So imagine if the leaders could genuinely forgive the past that initially fueled their aggression. Imagine if Ukraine's leaders and people could actually forgive the invasion and willingly rebuild together, perhaps even arm-in-arm with Russians for a better future. Now, I know, probably to most of you, that sounds naive and idealistic, but I beg to differ. Why? Because there has been a more difficult act of forgiveness in history and where forgiveness actually was extended. God in Christ forgave us. That was and continues to be the most difficult act of forgiveness in all history. We deserve from God eternally worse than any pain that one nation might inflict on another for past grievances. And so that's why I believe it's not naive, it's not simplistic to believe that if leaders and people and cultures could just learn to forgive one another, that we could actually rebuild and work towards peace. And that's the sticking point, unforgiveness. A part of the wonderful, just bright, even brighter and warmer than this anomaly of a spring day still in winter is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the most powerful antidote to unforgiveness. That's why today I've entitled the sermon, The Church's Redeemed Present. We have not only been redeemed in the past and a perfect work was finished and accomplished by Jesus and our identity in Christ begins in that historical event of Jesus' death and resurrection, but now we're to live into that in the present and we're meant to experience ongoing redemption in the present. And so my prayer for us today and as a summary of sort of the bottom line of this portion of Ephesians is, is this, for all of us, myself included, Lord, help me to perpetually put on my new self for the sake of holiness, just the, uh, piety in the, the, the most beautiful, good, healthy sense, for the sake of holiness, piety, for the sake of church unity, for the sake of witness, but above all, for the sake of God's glory. Why the new self? Because we're going to see that a very essential and just uncompromisable part of the new self of a Christian is the ability to overflow forgiveness in Christ. As God has forgiven us, now we forgive one another. And and this is so important, first, for our own maturation, our own sanctification, but also the context of this passage is is still church unity. If you're reading it 
and trying to be alert to the context, as Paul is talking about Christian morals now, the new self, uh, he is still in the larger context of church unity and how we're going to be one in Christ. And it's as we perpetually put on our new self, but certainly as we mature as Christians, we become a more attractive witness to the world. And God's name is lifted high, and he gets the glory. So I love that Paul, in these verses, he becomes very practical. And so for the concrete uh, friends out there, you'll appreciate today's passage because he gets very concrete and very much instructional. Uh, he's a brilliant mind and able to, uh, and, and God used him to pen and put down on paper beautiful, grand, complex, abstract theology of Christ and salvation and so forth, but he is also uh, pastoral enough that he gives us very concrete directions and instructions. So today, for the rest of our time, I want to answer the question, what does my new self in Christ look like? For the friend who has already placed faith in Jesus, you're meant to be growing into your new self increasingly, every day. Sure, we might have ups and downs, but the tenet of the gospel is that as God fills us with His Spirit until He calls us home that we persevere and we continue to become more Christ-like. For those friends who are still investigating, this is the invitation where we live in a culture and time that everyone is looking to develop their best self to be the best version of themselves. Your true best self won't come from within you. It comes from without, meaning Christ being placed on you, you being recreated in Christ and being given a new self, a new heart, and then you grow that new self in Christ. And so if you really want to be your best self, the invitation is for you to unite yourself to Jesus so that you could be born again in spirit and heart and mind and outlook on the world and grow into this. So, what does our new self in Christ look like? Here's the first thing that I want you to see with me. And we're going to uh, start at the very beginning, but then go to the end because I love how Paul uh, just sort of bookends and, and brings it back full circle. And so the new self, first of all, overflows grace. The new self overflows grace. This is part of our sort of uh, core vision statements at Trinity Grace Church, that we long to overflow God's grace in Christ. And the new self at the core continues to overflow grace. This is the, the perpetual engine of how we grow in Christ. Where do we see this? As Paul kicks off this portion of the letter, he says, therefore, meaning everything up to this point was his argument, his reasoning, and now he's going to give a conclusion. And he has a list of Christian conduct, Christian morals, and these morals, the way we're supposed to live out our new self, is meant to be a logical and necessary subsequence, a necessary outworking of grace, a grace-inspired and faith-motivated morality. Now, make no mistake, Paul explicitly lists a, a list of moral imperatives, a set of moral imperatives for the Christ follower, things that we're meant to do, commands that we're meant to obey, but these imperatives 
They're meant to flow out of our Christ identity, our indicative, our who we are in Christ. A Christ follower first has a Christ identity that overflows into Christ likeness. And so here we see it when he says, therefore, we're meant to overflow grace. Now this is important because if you think of the gospel as this narrow, straight path, and as following Jesus is this straight and narrow, then the gospel on each side has two sheer ditches or cliffs that we can fall off and lose our faith. On one side, uh, we have the trap, the ditch, the pitfall of legalistic Christianity. When we planted Trinity Grace Church at one of our first Q&As, I explained why we emphasize overflowing grace. We emphasize overflowing grace because it protects us from these two detrimental ditches. And these two ditches are both counterfeits of the gospel. On the one side, we can actually forget that we've been saved by grace and that we're meant to also be matured and sanctified by God's grace. That it's His steadfast love, His uh, just wonderful uh, mercies that motivates us. The way God has loved us in Christ, that that's what is supposed to motivate us to continue to produce good works. Not because we're trying to, clenching our teeth, continue to earn God's favor and earn God's forgiveness and love and grace and so forth. Legalistic Christianity, it has the tendency to be externalistic. Meaning you try to live out and demonstrate a Christianity on the outside, on the externals. You say all the right things, do all the right things, but inside, as Jesus accused the Pharisees of, your heart is actually still a tomb. There's something dead inside. Your motivations are awry and they're off. You could put it this way, that there's too much regard for our own self-derived holiness. Our self-sacrifice. If you find yourself often in service of the church or in trying to love others, that at the end of the day, there's a, a bitter tiredness in your heart then that might be a red flag that you're actually going down the path of a legalistic Christianity. Now on the other side, what we also have to be protected from and what overflowing grace protects us from is a lawless Christianity. The opposite of a legalistic Christianity. Lawless Christianity, it would be characterized by a sense of entitlement. I deserve to feel this, to enjoy this. And and if God, He just loves me unconditionally, then I can do whatever I want. And so where legalistic Christianity might have a self-sacrificial, like too much regard for for self-sacrifice and self-derived holiness, lawless Christianity is self-serving. And there is utter disregard for God's holiness and the sheer cost of Christ's sacrifice and His perfect moral performance. And so let's jump to the end of the passage. Paul brings it full circle, and he wants to remind us, and I think he's wise in doing so because he lists a set of moral imperatives for the Christian, 
And if we're not reminded that these, even this obedience is supposed to be an overflow of grace, then our natural heart's tendency is to think that we're actually building up some kind of self-righteousness before God. And so he brings it full circle at the end of the passage, verse 32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Again, this is a moral imperative, but what's the engine? What's the fuel? What drives that ability to be kind to one another? As God in Christ forgave you. That is the starting place for true Christianity. Always remembering how God has loved you. And really, we could make a, a blank here. A line, a blank line. As God in Christ, blank and however He has demonstrated His goodness towards you. As God in Christ has been patient with you. As God in Christ has spoken a good word to you. A life-giving word. As He has been merciful. As He has been uh, patient and, and loving and gentle and so forth. That's how we're going to be able to uh, overflow this to one another. Now this is right in line, just to, uh, if you're not convinced yet, to look to Jesus Himself in John's Gospel uh, before He's crucified, the night before He's crucified. He explains and teaches to His disciples, a new commandment I give to you. The, the, the clearest uh, command, the clearest imperative in the new covenant of grace, I would argue, is this command because Jesus identifies it so uh, specifically. A new command in the new covenant I give you to love one another, but he doesn't put a period there. And he qualifies it. Just as I have loved you. So you are to love one another. The, the old covenant was just love your neighbor as yourself. You and I were the reference point. And so there are loopholes there. Well, I wouldn't love my neighbor this way, so I'm not, or myself this way, so I'm not going to love my neighbor that way. But Jesus removes, eradicates that loophole as I have loved you. So you are to love one another. Do you see the overflowing nature of this? That's what the new self looks like. It's meant to overflow grace. Well, next I want you to see with me that the new self speaks truth with love. And Paul has already been, uh, t he's touched on this in the letter and we unpacked it, I think, a few weeks ago. But he repeats it here. And so, carrying on, therefore, if grace is really making a difference in your life, this is how you will act. And the first thing he says is, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Now, where do I see truth with love? The truth part is easy to uh, identify. Having put away falsehood, so stop lying to one another, stop hiding, stop spinning a web, stop spinning things, stop flattering there are a lot of ways to lie. Let each one of you speak the truth. So there it is plainly. Truth. And where do we see the love? The love comes in this part. With his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Now this word neighbor here, Paul is uh, first and foremost thinking of your fellow brother or sister in Christ. Context is always helpful. Context, context, context. And Paul is teaching about the church when he 
refers to members one of another. He's talking about being members of the body of Christ. And so first here, within the church of Christ, if there's going to be honesty anywhere, it should be the church. And so speaking truth, and I mean, think of your own body. The body is a brilliant metaphor for the church. Your body doesn't lie. If, if your foot, if you stub your toe and your foot is in pain, then it tells the brain. It doesn't lie. The body doesn't lie. If, if some part of your body is ailing, then somehow it will show up and you'll just know the body is, is unified. And there's true integrity within the body. And so there's, there's a love and care in that sense. And so truth with love. Now, why is it, why is it a necessary, logical subsequence that a Christ follower shouldn't lie? We lie for many different reasons. Uh, sometimes it's so that we can hide something we're guilty of, embarrassed of, ashamed of. Uh, that's usually the main reason. Um, but nevertheless, we lie. But Paul is saying here, if you are a Christ follower, then a, nece- a necessity is that a Christ follower shouldn't lie. We put off the old self of falsehood. Now the answer is because if we truly have received and live in God's unconditional love for us in Christ Jesus, then we should be convinced that we are completely safe. For starters, with God. But if, if, if God's unconditional acceptance has really truly begun to seep in, that's huge. And, and that is the power to begin to be honest with, especially those in Christ who are meant to extend the same grace the same acceptance that God has extended to you and me. We have nothing to hide. In my season of life uh, as a parent, um, and I feel like uh, my, my kids are 13 and 10, and I feel like just maybe in the past two, three years, uh, my kids have finally begun to believe that our home is truly a safe place. Uh, when they were younger, and I would catch them in a lie, I said, do you believe that dad and mom love you no matter what? And of course they're going to say yes, and they did say yes. And then I said, well then, if we love you, and we're going to love you no matter what, then you should be able to just tell it like it is. Just tell the truth. And when they were convinced up here and in here, then the floodgates of truth came out and all the confessions of who ate the candy and so forth. Now, it's no different for the adult. For no matter how old you are, if you're in the family of Christ and you are living in the unconditional love and grace in Christ, the the love that God cannot forsake you for the sake of His Son, and the blood that He shed and sealed the new covenant of grace with were meant to come into light with one another. 
That's why it's meant to be a necessary, logical subsequence that a Christ follower shouldn't lie. Now, to be fair and to be understanding of just the human condition, you and I being human, when are we apprehensive? When do we feel distrustful or feel or fearful of sharing transparently and honesty. It's when we believe that we will be condemned. When we'll get into more trouble. When we believe we'll be judged judgmentally with condemnation. Not judged compassionately for edification. Did you catch that? Judging in and of itself is, is not wrong. In fact, we're meant to be discerners of truth and goodness and where we fall short and how we need to grow. But how we're judged, whether condemningly, judgmentally, or compassionately for edification. Th- this is why I pray, and I hope you pray, and I try to remind our new communities and also our Christian homes, our Christ-centered friendships and relationships, I pray that these pockets of Christian community would keep maturing to become genuine, safe places of grace. Because if we can't come into the light of what we are struggling with, what we are pained with, how we feel vulnerable, then how will we grow? How will we grow? We're to be a life giving light to one another, and we're to be willing to live in the light amongst one another, Because how else can we deal with our sins and weaknesses if we can't feel safe to expose them and lovingly, gently, compassionately deal with one another and even approach others? Well, related to that then, the new self next, I want you to see with me, processes anger skillfully and quickly. Where do we see this? Paul then says, just very simply, verse 26, be angry. And do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now where I see the quickly part is do not let the sun go down on your anger. If you can process your anger within a day, you're pretty mature. (laughs) And you're pretty skilled at self-counseling and being self-aware because I have friends and I know people who are still carrying and, and unable to process their anger and resentment and bitterness from their childhood. So if you can get it done in a day, that's pretty quick. And more grace to you. Now what I want you to see with me is that, and the reason I highlight the and, is because Paul is saying it's okay to be angry. Because he's saying you can be angry. That's a fact of life. It'll happen. But don't sin. Anger is meant to be a friend. Anger is meant to be a healthy warning system. And looking through Scripture, an obvious example of a healthy, good anger, a righteous anger, is Jesus in the temple courts where He is flipping tables. And if Jesus can be angry, then obviously, logically, it's a righteous anger. We know that God... He is, he, has, he can be an angry God. But because of His graciousness, His anger lasts only for a moment, especially in Christ. 
So there is righteous anger, but there is also unhealthy anger. But Paul's exhortation is for us to process our anger quickly and skillfully. Now, let me just share some things more from observation and experience in life. But I think it lines up with what Paul is saying here. Anger is always a symptom. You have to understand, if, if anger is going to become that tool that actually helps you in life, you have to understand that it's a symptom. You feel anger if something offends your worldview, your system of beliefs, your control, the harmony and equilibrium that you believe should characterize your world. But where there's a symptom, here's the point. If anger is a symptom, then there's always a root cause. There's a root condition. And anger is meant to be a built-in friend and counselor that signals you to reflect on what is making you angry and why you're angered. Okay? Just let me give a quick, easy example. And I've actually felt this as I'm walking with my kids, and then all of a sudden a dog comes out of nowhere and is growling and barking. And anger wells up in me. Just this mode, I don't know if I could actually, I just, quick scenes of, action movies where the, this muscle guy has the dog that just times it and, you know, punches the dog and, and I'm just ready to protect my kids, right? That's a healthy anger. And anger triggers me to want to protect. That's a symptom, but the root cause is here, okay, I want to protect my kids, okay? So this is an example of, of the idea. I hope you're getting the idea. Now, then, just to put it another way, just as pain is a necessary part of a nervous system, because if you don't feel the pain when your hand is over a fire, then you'll burn up. But because you feel that pain, you quickly draw your hand away. Just as pain is a necessary part of a nervous system, uh, anger is an important part of the nervous system of a soul. And so anger is a warning system. So Paul is saying, um, yeah, I know I had a point with that cute dog, but we're going to, for sake of time, uh, pass on that. But Paul is saying, in your anger, don't sin. Let, let it turn into a healthy anger, a friend, a, a warning system to understand what's really going on and deal with the root issues. And that's why Paul says in verse 27, and give no opportunity to the devil. This word opportunity, it's where we get the English word topology. Like, so meaning a map that kind of uh, lays out the land. And so don't give real estate to the devil in your heart, basically. So how do I know when my anger is becoming unhealthy? When I'm giving the devil space in my heart? Now, of course, this is a grave warning because if we give the devil more and more space in our heart, that's how we become calloused, and that's how we eventually just fall away from Christ of our own accord. So how do I know I'm giving the devil space in my heart? We're going to jump down to verse 31, and the commentators, uh, they agree that this list is kind of a tie back to uh, verse 26, where Paul was speaking about anger. And he, here he begins to list different versions of anger. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander 
be put away from you along with all malice. We're answering the question, how do I know I'm giving the devil space in my heart? Bitterness is angrily withholding forgiveness. And on the other side of the same coin, holding on to unforgiveness. And sometimes bitterness can be a raging fire or it can just be a smoldering ember. Wrath is anger acted out. When you become wrathful, you actually begin to now spew out the anger in some kind of form of violence. Related to that, clamor is anger through yelling and barking. So become verbally angry. Slander, it's also verbal, but more specifically, it's anger toward a person through false and destructive words. To bring down a person's reputation, to bring down a person and their morale, their spirit. Malice is specifically anger intentionally aimed at a specific target. When you have malice in your heart, it's laser-focused at that person or situation. So how do you give the devil space in your heart? How do you know you've given space in your heart? Just look at your relationships. Is there any broken relationship that is clouded by any of these forms of anger? I remember again, the context of this passage is still the church and our unity. And so all the more within the church, is there any of this that is smoking around? Now, the next point, it's going to sound kind of funny when you initially hear it, so I'm warning you. But what does the new self also look, at, look like? The new self has a pure-hearted, not greedy, generous capitalism. Okay? Sorry, the grammar is messed up there. The new self is a pure-hearted, not greedy, generous capitalist. I know that sounds funny, but let, let me explain. The, the important part is to notice the pure-hearted, not greedy, generous. Now, where do I see this? Paul, verse 28 Remember, these are all meant to be logical conclusions, necessary subsequences of grace working out in someone's heart, of Christ making a difference. And he says, Now let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor. And this word labor, it, it, it carries the notion of working hard till you're tired. Doing honest work with his own hands. Why? This is where I see the healthy generous, not greedy capitalism, pure-hearted, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. One friend put it this way, how can you be generous if you have nothing to share? And so meaning it's good with the right motive that we work and cultivate and earn and build up so that we can share. I love how William MacDonald uh, comments on this part. And he says, stealing takes many forms, all the way from grand larceny to non-payment of debts to plagiarism to the use of false measurements and to falsifying expense accounts. Of course, we could go on. Just if we're ex uh, There's exploitation, especially, let's say, you're in the position to hire and, and pay people. I heard a, I was listening to a podcast on marriage 
uh, last week, and uh, the, the speaker was even saying, spouses, be careful of stealing time from your spouse. Meaning, you promise that date night, but then you let work get in the way, or some other priority get in the way, and you're stealing their time. That could be another form of, of stealing. Now, Willie McDonald, he makes the point, and I agree with him, and he says this, what Paul is saying here is radical and revolutionary. The natural approach, and I'm just reading from him now, the natural approach is for men to work for the supply of their own needs and desires. Greedy capitalism. When their income rises, their standard of living rises. Everything in their lives revolves around self. But this verse suggests a nobler, more exalted view of employment. It is a means of supplying a modest standard for one's living and one's family, but then alleviating human need, spiritual and temporal, at home and abroad, and how vast that need is. Next, what does my new self in Christ look like? Paul wants to see that the new self filters the tongue. And he goes on to say, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace, words that actually give grace to those who hear. Uh, this Friday, uh, we had our parents' new community, and um, something that happens all the time with little ones, and, and a story was just shared again, how a little one was uh, repeating exactly what mom and dad were saying. And mom and dad were saying um, just crap a lot, right? And then, so little one, crap. <laughs> it's cute, but it's like, then the parent realizes, oh my goodness, I got to watch my words. <laughs> now, similarly, like why? Why for the Christ follower should we care about? Why is it a, a necessity that the way grace overflows is to watch our mouths? It's because God himself, our Father in heaven, has spoken the most beautiful word to us. One of grace and forgiveness in Christ, the gospel. Now Paul, he, makes, he shows us the other side of this, that your words can actually corrupt. Just as when a virus gets into your computer and corrupts files and apps and the operating system, so words can corrupt. If you don't do this experiment, but if, if and this happens in life all the time, where someone is saying something negative, something demeaning, something to tear down someone, and that actually gets into their psyche, and they begin to believe those words. It corrupts their being. It corrupts their soul, and their soul begins to break down. But the new self intentionally seeks to build up. And so we're meant to have kind of a, a reverse customs uh, office in our brain, where customs is more about who do we let into the country, uh, reverse customs. Who do we let out? And so before we speak, that we develop that muscle, that spiritual muscle, are these words giving grace? Are these words going to build this person up because of the word that God has spoken to us? But we're also to see that the new self does not take for granted its most precious relationship. So Paul, he's beginning to wind down this passage. 
And he says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. I love how a brother put it uh, during morning prayer yesterday, just uh, praying and meditating about this verse. The fact that we can grieve God. The fact that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. I mean, this is God. So I don't know if this illustration is going to do it justice. But let's say, you know, Jeff Bezos, one of the richest men in the world, owns Amazon. And let's say I don't buy that $5 toenail clipper from him. and I buy it from AliExpress instead. Is he really going to care? Probably not. I, I can't grieve him, per se. He's still going to make his money somewhere. But God, being even greater than all the tycoons of history, being more moral and perfect in holiness, on one hand, he could, in his greatness, not care. And yet, now in Christ, as he indwells us by spirit, and comes as close and intimately to us as God possibly can. He makes himself, in that sense, I I want you to hear this carefully, uh, vulnerable. I don't mean that God can be thwarted by us or or that he be put off the rails by us, that he's going to somehow become depressed and and, and his plan of redemption is not going to be fulfilled. I don't mean that at all, but... But the fact here, just black and white, that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. And so Paul is saying, don't take for granted. Don't take for granted your most precious relationship. It's not, if you're married, it's not your spouse. If you're a parent, it's not your children. If you're single, it's not your best friend. But it's the Holy Spirit. Now why? Because... It's the Holy Spirit who has actually applied grace to us. It's the Holy Spirit that has brought us into the body of Christ. And as He has been the one to demonstrably apply what Christ has done on the cross and the resurrection to our hearts, you could say that He's the one that actually was that final messenger Christ leaving a spirit, and the spirit is the final messenger to actually tell us in our hearts and minds of this gospel, to speak this word, to apply the love and grace of God in Christ to us, then if we're not living in these ways, this new self, then we're spiting him. We're not loving others as he has loved us. And so that's why I bring it back full circle now. Be kind to one another. Tenderhearted. That's straightforward. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now, forgiveness, it truly is divine because forgiveness, what it literally means is that a debt is absorbed. Someone at some point has to absorb that debt. If it's financial forgiveness, relational forgiveness, no matter what. The essence of forgiveness is that a debt is absorbed. Someone has to pay for that debt somehow. And so what Jesus has done on the cross is truly absorbed all the sin 
and wrath of God on the sin of you and me and humanity, He's absorbed it. He's paid for it through His life and shed blood. So when you, when you still have negative feelings, what do you do? You're not meant to absorb that yourself per se. Because if you do, you, you, in that sense, modern psychology has it right. You're just going to take in all that toxicity, all that negativity. It's going to show up in your body somehow. You are not capable. You will break down physically and spiritually at some point if you try to absorb all the debt of forgiveness. And so what the Christ follower is called to do, the way we continue to forgive one another is to remember as God in Christ forgave you. If those negative feelings are at the door of your heart again and again and again, whatever bitterness, malice, clamor, wrath is seeking to break out of the cage of your old self's heart, just dump it. Pray it. Pour it out into the nail-pierced hands of Jesus Christ. That's the only way you're going to be able to forgive, to perpetually forgive, in a healthy way to forgive. And remember that Christ forgave you. Speaking from my own life, there was one person, it took five years, just continually. I thought I had forgiven Whenever I saw this person, something continued to, some malice continued to rise up again. And I just had to, every time, under my breath, in my heart, Lord, I choose to forgive this person again as you have forgiven me. And then finally, five years later, there was a real breakthrough where I just once and for all definitively felt free. And whenever I saw this person again, it was good. I had to just keep pouring it out into the nail-pierced hands of Jesus. So let's end just praying this together. Would you join with me from your hearts and let's read this prayer together. Lord, help me to perpetually put on my new self for the sake of holiness, church unity, witness, and your glory. Amen. Anybody?